Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the podcast, we're joined by equity research analysts Bobby Reynolds and Claire Fleming, who discuss the global implications of China's new export rules and other themes shaping the industrial and material sector with host Brian Borsakowski. Bobby, who covers Canadian industrials, says that things like the prices paid measures are coming down a bit, indicating that the Fed may be taking their foot off the gas at some point this year. They also explained that the industrial economy has been slowing down for the past eight or nine months, with freight companies experiencing recession-like conditions without an overall recession. Claire, who covers materials, says her research strategy is centered around finding companies that are well-positioned on the cost curve, have stellar management teams, and deliver great assets that are difficult to replicate. This episode was recorded on July 5th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So why don't we uh, start off maybe just by setting the table here. Tell us a bit about what both of you cover so everybody knows. Claire, why don't we start with you? My current coverage for the team at Fidelity is Canadian materials excluding gold. Uh, So within that sector coverage, there's a lot of different sub-industries that we'll be talking about through our discussion today, including some of the copper and diversified miners, forest products, chemicals, including some of the agriculture-related chemicals, as well as packaging and steel-related industries. Great. Bobby? Yeah, so Brian, I cover Canadian industrials, so that would include uh, railroads, trucking, uh, waste companies, some professional services firms, capital goods companies. We've got aerospace and airlines in Canada. Um, so it's pretty wide variety of businesses that I get to look at. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of different companies. We'll, we'll get into the process and how you actually manage all of this a little bit later. But why don't we start off with uh, just the economic news of, you know, of the moments. Um, we've seen the Bank of Canada raise rates, Fed kind of pause. We'll, we'll get maybe some more insight on their decision making today. How do these big... Uh, issues, the economic issues impact the sectors that both of you cover. Bobby, if you want to give some insight into what you're looking for in terms of economic news, and then we can talk, Claire, you can sh- and share what you look at. Yeah, so industrials by their nature tend to be more cyclical companies. So I definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the economic cycle and also the individual cycles that impact the various Canadian industrials stocks that I follow. You know, the economy and the industrial economy has been slowing down for at least the last eight or nine months. One of the indicators that I follow is the Purchasing Managers Index in the U.S. If it's below 50, that indicates contraction versus where the economy was before. It's been below 50 since November last year. and We just got the latest reading on Monday. It was a 46 for June. That was slightly below expectations of a 47. You know, the silver lining there is that you're also seeing things like the prices paid 
measures come down, which means your, the inflationary pressures are, are slowing a bit, at least in the industrial economy, which hopefully means the Fed can take their foot off the gas at some point later this year. Other areas that have remained much stronger would include the non-residential construction sector. So if you tie that back to the large stimulus bills that the United States signed in 2021 and 2022, those are still just flowing through the economy. So, you know, stuff like road building or building semiconductor facilities in the U.S., that's causing a very large spike in spending on non-residential construction. In contrast, the, the weaker areas that are getting picked up in those aggregate measures would be stuff like freight transportation, where there was a large demand for goods initially after the pandemic. Companies ended up buying too much inventory, and effectively, there's been a, a very large destocking over the last year of that inventory. So a lot of freight companies have experienced recession-like conditions without an economic recession. It's really been that that freight recession that, that's been hurting them. So those have been some of the macroeconomic factors at play in industrials. Claire? And I'm also covering a very cyclical sector for the team, given that for some of those industries I mentioned, whether they're um, miners or producing chemicals, a lot of those goods go into very cyclical end markets, whether they're construction or auto and tie into a lot of the industries that Bodby covers as well within industrials. I think one of the key themes that we've been monitoring since the last discussion that we had with you, Brian, um, is understanding the progress of the Chinese reopening since COVID, just given that a lot of my coverage sectors have exposure to um, Chinese-related demand, uh, up to over 50% for some of the metals and chemicals within my coverage group. And I think we'll get into um, progress in that later on in our discussion today. I think the playbook for a lot of these companies when you're looking at a potential recession scenario is just understanding um, sort of which companies you feel that you have relatively more visibility on their earnings power or durability of demand throughout a cycle, understanding which companies have the balance sheet capacity or other levers to withstand a slowdown scenario, and also understanding um, sort of what's implied in valuation across those different subsectors. Sometimes you get different factors that cause maybe expectations for a slowdown to be more priced in to certain subsectors or groups and others. And that can create great risk reward or opportunities across the group if you find areas where expectations for slowdown or recession might already be priced into certain stocks. I just, I just wonder just to pick up on sort of, uh, you know, getting a good understanding of a business uh, in, in the material sector. Over the years, uh, it's sometimes it's been hard to know exactly what's happening. There's been criticisms of overspending and all these sorts of things. How is kind of the visibility into these businesses today? How has that maybe evolved over the years? I think within the material sector, a lot of the focus goes into finding companies with really great assets that are different, difficult to replicate. Um, whether that's a copper mine or a certain chemicals plant, uh, I think that given that these are very capital intensive businesses and the replacement cost for certain assets has increased in certain industries, especially given recent inflation, being able to find companies where um, they have great positioning on the cost curve, um, where there's visibility on longer term demand, um, especially if there's um, favorable secular trends, whether that's related to decarbonization or other um, aspects of the energy transition, um, as well as finding um, companies that have great management teams running those assets that give you more visibility on the operations. I think recognize that there's often um, fluctuations throughout the business cycle and demand, 
but often if you can find those assets attractively priced, there's um, visibility on outperformance over the longer term or even potential optionality for um, M&A if you know that, that those types of assets that are really high quality uh, could be of interest to a potential acquirer. Claire, we'll stick with you on, the, on this question. You mentioned China, which, yeah, is, has been uh, big news. I think last time we talked, there was some optimism. China's reopening would, would really help the sector. Everyone knows now it's kind of slowed down a bit. So what are you seeing from China in terms of that growth? And how is that affecting um, the companies that you cover? You're right. I think the last time we spoke, there was a lot of optimism as the Chinese consumer was going out. And, and similar to the stage that we went through, starting to go to restaurants, traveling, you're seeing more strength in consumer-related metrics, but a lot more challenges um, in some of the industries related to manufacturing as well as fixed asset investment um, that impact my sector. I think especially in areas like commodity chemicals, as well as some of the copper and diversified miners. I think the main impact of that is that demand is still growing or recovering in a lot of sub-industries, but perhaps at a bit slower pace than might have initially been expected. In terms of manufacturing indicators, similar to the PMI leading indicator that Bobby mentioned in the US, some of the Chinese uh, manufacturing PMIs have perhaps been slightly weaker than expected in recent months. And in terms of other leading indicators, um, fixed asset investment in China is another key thing that we look at for understanding materials demand, just because that encompasses things like property or manufacturing related investment. Um, as well as infrastructure. And that's still positive year over year, but has been decelerating um, since the last time that we would have spoke. So absent a significant change in policy or stimulus, it seems like the recovery is still underway, but perhaps at a bit slower pace than might have been expected the last time we spoke. And I think one of the great things about working at Fidelity is that there is the team on the ground in China. Um, there was an F, uh, Fidelity International um, China trip within the past um, quarter, which I wasn't a part of, but being able to have colleagues who have their boots on the ground there and are talking to companies, looking more at the industries um, that are related to the end markets for demand within my coverage group is really helpful for feeling more confident with the outlook there and making sure that we're not missing anything related to that region as we work here on the team in Toronto. And, and Bobby, uh, how are you affected by China? Is it as kind of direct or maybe indirectly through the goods that get shipped? How is it impacting your, your companies? Yeah, so I think China China's economy is big enough. It impacts most other economies in the world in, in some way or another. In Canada, we're a large natural resource exporter. So to the extent Chinese demand for certain commodities are, are weaker, and that impacts prices enough, that can impact the volume of production in Canada, which might impact something like Canadian Railroad or a Canadian Trucking Company. We also have companies in Canada in the mining equipment or capital goods space that, again, if commodity prices are lower, that can impact their business indirectly. I'd also say in terms of the, the weaker investment in Chinese manufacturing capacity, the opposite's happening in North America. There's this big onshoring or reshoring theme in Canada, the United States, and Mexico that's creating a huge boom in capital spend in North America. And that has benefits for some Canadian companies that might help integrate or set up the automated production lines that you'd put into these facilities for electric vehicles or semiconductors, for example. So you know, China might be weaker, but there's also strength in, in other areas that you can play as an investment theme as an offset. 
Great. We we have a lot to get to, but actually there's some advisor questions that came, came in that uh, I, I think are pretty interesting and uh, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts and timely based on kind of what's happening in Canada today. So we have uh, forest fires across Canada. Have you seen any impact on either of the industries that you cover from, from the forest fires? Bobby, start with you. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. So they have impacted the transportation sector. So the railroads as one example, you know, they They've had to limit operations in certain areas, like in Alberta, that have been impacted by the fires. Um, I think there has been some temporary containments of oil and gas production in Alberta. A lot of the the pro products that come out of that production move by rail, so you know downstream chemicals, for example. So you've seen a little bit of volume weakness there, but on the whole, it's been a fairly small impact relative to everything else that that's going on in the economy. Yeah, you know, it's. Another evidence of climate change impacting businesses, if you remember uh, two years ago, there was significant flooding in British Columbia. That had a much larger impact on the operations of the railroads. So this so far has been pretty well contained and hard to see in the data. And Claire, what about you? Does it, is there an impact on, on the areas that you cover? Within my coverage group, the forest product subsector is the most clearly impacted by those fires, just given that those are the companies that own the mills, which are producing the lumber or oriented strand board or OSB or other types of products, whether that's paper or pulp um, from uh, the forestry industry. I think I can break that into some shorter term as well as more medium term impacts for the sector. In the shorter term, um, given that that is somewhat, the impact's been more pronounced in Quebec relative to other areas of North America, some companies have still been able to work through inventories um, that they had on site at certain mills. So the impact isn't necessarily immediate or having as um, significant of a supply on the entire Quebec supply uh, to the forest products industry. I think if you look more medium term, though, given that we are just entering the fire season that's historically um, a lot stronger in July and August within North America, there could be more supply disruptions related to those uh, Quebec mills if they do work through um, some of those weeks of inventory that some keep on site. And as well, that just causes your supply demand to look a bit tighter than might have initially been expected, especially when you combine that incre incremental supply constraints as well as demand being slightly stronger than expected when you look at some of the metrics like U.S. housing starts um, being stronger than expected in recent months. I think that contributes to a slightly tighter supply demand uh, outlook for those specific commodities compared to what might have been um, expected previously, especially given some of the challenges related to higher interest rates and, and what that means for uh, housing affordability. There is also a question about the labor strike at the ports, and I imagine would have some impact on, on the sectors that you cover. What, what are you seeing from that? It is something that we're monitoring uh, in terms of potential impacts from my coverage or whether there's been um, announcements are related to things like steelmaking coal or um, certain copper concentrates or fertilizers that are traditionally um, shift, shipped out of those ports. At this time, it seems like most companies are trying to find solutions to uh, mitigate some of those disruptions and find alternate um, areas uh, to ship from, but it is something that could have potential implications uh, based on the duration of that for my coverage group, given their use of those ports in the West Coast. I would add on that the ports of Vancouver and Prince Rupert are two of the most important ports in Canada. I think, you know, 
upwards of a quarter of uh, Canadian imports and exports go through those ports. And so to the extent it drags on for more than a few days, there will be significant economic impact. You know, you'll see that in the rail volumes. You'll, you'll see that for a lot of downstream companies, whether they be retailers, especially retailers with more fast moving goods that are difficult to, to stockpile. You'll probably see shortages on the shelves. And so, you know, I think you, pr- I, I have a sense that you probably get the rest of this week to have something worked out at the bargaining table before the government needs to intervene in some way or another, because th- this would be highly disruptive if it continues. Great. And Bob, just, just to continue on uh, with, with some of the companies that you're seeing, what other trends in the space? You and I talked a bit before about AI, which I thought was interesting. I don't think people think AI and industrials. Tell me a bit about what you're seeing there. Yeah. So a subset of industrials would be commercial and business services. And so in Canada, that includes companies that do things like sell content and software to the legal and tax industries. It could also be companies that provide business process outsourcing for customer experience. So that might be running call centers and the whole customer relationship management system. And so, you know, AI, and I'd specify more generative AI, which is really what ChatGPT is, has, I think, opened people's eyes to some potentially large changes in these more white collar industries that could be coming down the pipe in the next three to five years. And so the legal industry is one example is all, you know, if you look at studies on the potential impact of generative AI, the legal industry is often singled out as one of the top industries open for disruption, or you could say more so productivity enhancement from some of the things that AI could do. It can draft legal memos, it can do legal research, maybe make searching for legal topics easier or faster. And so, you know, you're seeing some of the large Canadian companies make large organic investments and M&A investments to make sure they are the enabler of this technology for their clients, the law firms, rather than being disrupted by it. Similarly, you know, some of the, say, call center companies they're viewed as a generative AI loser because eventually if AI gets to the point where you're on the phone and you're talking to an AI voice and not a human voice, that could result in significant labor cost savings. And some of these business models rely you know, more on a revenue per head basis. And if that's getting disintermediated, it brings the question, if, is there a terminal risk to a business model? You know, the market's gone there to that jump to that conclusion fairly rapidly for some of these companies. And so valuations have become quite low. So it's our job to figure out if that disruption is potentially overblown in some cases, and it might be an interesting investment opportunity, or if the sort of valuation discount is warranted. And those are some of the, you know, the AI related things that we're looking at just in industrials. I mean, there's impacts across most industries. And, 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 you know, in the intro, I was talking about air travel booming, um, which is, you know, prices are, are kind of high and people maybe cutting back on spending, but yet we're still seeing travel. Why yeah. why is it doing so well? And, and, and can that last given the recessionary pressures that people may be feeling? It's a great question. It's one of the big debates right now on the airline stocks. I think one of the reasons prices are so high is jet fuel spiked to all-time record levels last year and into early this year. And, you know, jet fuel is effectively a pass-through cost for the airlines. And so they had to price their tickets at a higher cost or at a higher price to recoup that. 
you know, jet fuel has fallen by 50% in the last three months. And most people book their travel two to three months ahead of time. And so the airlines will all see these windfall profits this summer from tickets that were booked, assuming higher jet fuel, but now they're, you know, they, none of them hedge the fuel costs anymore. And so they'll benefit from the lower fuel prices. I think in some of the public, you know, stack can data, we are seeing ticket prices start to moderate a little bit, likely reflecting that, that fuel, that lower fuel costs. There's been a lot of other inflationary pressures in the airline industry that the companies need to price for. So I would not expect prices to revert to 2019 levels. Now, back to your question on demand, it's part of this large goods to services rotation where we're seeing in the economy. You know, in 2020 and 2021, it was all about spending on your home and spending on goods. In 22 and 23, it's been all about the pivot to spending on services, which frankly was that spending on experience experiences was a secular trend in the economy before COVID. You know, younger people tend to want to travel more often as the millennials get wealthier. That's a nice tailwind for the air travel industry. And so there are reasons to believe that the that the demand boom that you're seeing it for leisure travel can continue to some degree. You know, the other question is the corporate travel side, which hasn't recovered and is potentially permanently impaired so far. The leisure traveler has made up for that, but can that continue is another key question for, for that sector. But right now, things look pretty good for them. Great. Yeah, I just booked a business trip and it was expensive. So uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> too bad I can't go back to those those prices. Um, just we, we talk a lot about kind of short term issues, uh, medium term issues impacting the space. But but Claire, what is the long term reason why people might want to look at materials? And then Bobby, you talk about industrials. Let, let's talk a bit more, uh, you know, big picture here. I think a lot of the really important um, big picture themes for the sector tie into some of our earlier comments about what makes a great asset within materials. Uh, I think that a lot of these assets are still quite difficult to replicate, whether that's um, the cost of them, the technical expertise to build something complicated, like a mine. You need a lot of permitting and regulatory challenges to overcome. And it also can be a very lengthy time process of, of multiple years whether that's um, a chemicals plant or a mine or even um, a lumber mill in order to get those um, capital intensive projects completed. So I think the longer term case um, for a lot of these companies is just built on having those assets that are difficult to replicate if they're well positioned in the cost curve and can withstand downturns, to have visibility on returns throughout various points in the cycle. And also in certain industries where M&A is starting to pick up, creates potential optionality if you know that those assets could be of interest to an acquirer. Bobby? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll start out with a, a mantra that you probably hear often is that stocks follow earnings. And if you look at the industrial sector in Canada, it's about 13% of the TSX composite. But if you look at any longer term sort of ranking of the top performing stocks in Canada over 5, 10 or 15 years, probably 25 to 30% of those stocks would be industrials. And the reason for that is there's a lot of unique business franchises listed in the Canadian market that have been able to compound earnings at a faster rate than the broader market over a long period of time. And you know those conditions will likely persist. So what are some examples of that? The railroads in Canada, great long-term compounders of earnings. 
you know, they benefit from the natural geography of Canada. It's harder for trucks to compete with rails here. They benefit from our resource-rich export-oriented economy. There's lots of goods for them to move. You've got the solid waste companies, which have sort of local duopolies that have been able to compound price over time and also add a lot of value through M&A. You've got the information services companies that are highly defensible business models that consistently introduce new products to sell into their customer base and have a large sort of number one lead in their market. And then if you go down just into the smaller size, there's a lot of industrial companies that have found a niche and figured out a way to sort of acquire accretively within that niche and, and grow at attractive incremental returns. And so, you know, when we're assessing longer term earnings growth potential, one of the key questions to ask is, can this company redeploy the capital they're generating at attractive returns or at similar returns as they have in the past? And if they can, that might help them sustain above average growth. And we have a number of companies in Canada that are able to do that and have that runway. And so those are the things we're looking for. And those are some of the reasons why the industrial sector is a good hunting ground for investments. Great. Let's move on to something a little bit different. You know, we started off mentioning all the companies and areas that you cover. Talk to me a bit about, I guess, how, how you as an analyst cover these companies and how does that kind of roll up into the funds that actually hold, hold these businesses? Claire? So I can start initially with a summary of how the role works and how we interact with various parts of the team, both at the portfolio manager level as well as with other analysts uh, throughout different offices of Fidelity. I think across all of these companies that I've been assigned within those sub-industries, uh, as the analysts, you're the one responsible for helping to create the financial forecasts for that business over multiple years, having a view on the valuation of the stock, helping with the scenario analysis for these companies as to what they look like in a recession or expansionary scenario, and also um, continuing to update those assumptions for uh, the additional information that you get, whether that's on a quarterly uh, earnings release or conference call or an interview with a management team or other industry data source. As the analyst, you're the point person for a lot of those updates and you integrate that into your investment thesis as to why you think we should own more or less of certain stocks. Internally, it's great to have that global team of analysts, um, whether they're in London or in some of our Asia Pacific offices, given that the material is a very global sector, even though these companies are listed in Canada, a lot of their assets or competitors are in different jurisdictions. So being able to have access to those read-throughs through our internal publishing system, our calls with other analysts is really helpful for covering the group. And I think some of that collaboration really helps us add value for the portfolio managers, both here in Toronto or Montreal, as well as some of our global portfolio managers and other offices who have the optionality to look at Canadian securities, given that our information is shared in, in real time with our views and, and forecasts for these companies. And uh, we help portfolio managers across a range of styles, whether they're more value oriented or more growth oriented, and try to help them find uh, companies in our coverage group that seem aligned with their investment philosophy or strategy. Great, Bobby. Yeah, I think one thing I would add is what one of the great things about being on the Fidelity team is most of the portfolio managers started out as analysts and probably covered at least three different sectors. And so 
sitting in the Toronto office with myself and Claire, there's probably five or six people there that have covered the same stocks that we're now covering and can provide that historical perspective. You know, everything they wrote on the, the industrial stocks are also in our research database from 30 plus years ago. And so that's a great advantage we have to get up to speed quickly on these sectors. Um, so just the experience of the team is a big help and can help if you're a new analyst getting started on a new sector, get, get up to speed quickly, while that new analyst also provides you know, a fresh set of eyes and a fresh perspective on a space where sometimes you, know, you can get entrenched in your view. Um, you know, I think having that rotation through sectors that we have at Fidelity um, helps bring that fresh perspective. There was a, actually a question from an advisor before, which ties into this. If there are any fairly funds that invest heavily in industrials and materials, I mean, your, your, your ideas go into all sorts of funds, but are there any specific kind of industrial materials funds? I don't believe we have. a. We do have a natural resource fund in Canada yes. run by uh, Joe and Darren. Um, in terms of an industrial specific fund, I don't believe we have that product in Canada. Um, but there are many funds that would be overweight the sector. Um, but there isn't a specific sector fund. I think the portfolio managers do a good job of overweighting the sectors where they find the most money-making opportunities. And sometimes that's industrials and materials. Sometimes that's consumer or tech. And, you know, it just depends on a particular manager's view on the, the investment opportunities in the market. We only have a couple minutes left, or really, I guess a minute left. I'm just going to maybe closing closing remarks from both of you as we move into the summer what are you looking for from the companies that you cover? Just, yeah, it's a quick 30 seconds. Bobby? Yeah, so for some sector, parts of the economy that have been under pressure, such as freight, we're looking for you know, confirmation of bottoming and potentially some sequential improvements off the bottom. Often those changes in second derivatives can be powerful. Um, secondly, it's just you know, what's going on in the broader economy with inflation and, and the labor market and the Fed's ability to manufacture a soft landing per se, I think that will have a big impact on, you know, which stocks could be relative out or underperformers in in the industrial space. And then just continuing to look for those idiosyncratic opportunities. I think that they're there in the market today. You know, our funds own a lot of these certain opportunities, try to play some longer term themes, maybe some, some themes that emerge in COVID and um, you know, are unwinding now and could benefit some companies like supply chain normalization. So, you know, those would be some of the things I'm looking for over the next few months. Great. And Claire, how about you? I think within my sector, uh, of course, given concerns about a recession scenario, looking for companies where there's visibility on uh, earnings growth over the medium to longer term, understanding where there's opportunities where maybe a recession scenario or slowdowns already priced in, and looking at the companies with those anomalies or idiosyncratic opportunities, whether that's a really great management team or a project that's underway that gives you visibility on outperformance, are the areas I'm really hoping to spend more time on for our portfolio managers. Great. I will leave it there. Thank you both so much. Until next time, which hopefully will be soon. Um, have a great uh, rest of July. We don't talk before then, but thanks for being here. Thanks, Brian. Right. Thank you. Thank you all again for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor 
or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.